I don't know how many times I've heard the same story. Uh, I know for a fact it's the story of uh, a number of us in this room. Your friend, your pastor, your youth pastor pursued you and engaged you, um, shared the gospel with you in different ways, different times, pressed you to think about it, consider it. Uh, And finally, that great day came when all of their sowing, all of their hard work produced the fruit of, of salvation in your life. They were excited for you, rejoiced with you, prayed with you, and God blessed them for their their faithfulness in that. But then what so often happens is once you had come to trust in Christ, that faithful friend really doesn't know what to do with you. And so we we just kind of, good luck, welcome to the church, And, and, and it happens a lot. You're just kind of left to figure out faith on your own now. Where do we go from here? We make a huge deal about sharing the gospel, and we ought to. We're going to, we're going to take next week and, and dig into that a little more. What it means, uh, Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. That's huge, huge, huge. Um, we need to hold that and, and go out, sent. And yet, I think we easily forget That Jesus' command, the the great commission that we've been given, is not just to go and make converts. It's to go and make disciples. That's intentional wording on Jesus' part, if that needs to be said. And it's it's followed up with this, the fullness of that command is, is baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It's not just to, in the gate out-of-the-gate idea. It's a, it's a lifelong engagement of, of learning and growing. That, that's what it means to be a disciple. I made the analogy a few weeks ago of how growing in our faith or, or growing, a, growing a family is, is more than just about having babies, right? You, you need to care for those babies. You need to feed them and help them mature and grow to the point where they are Self-sufficient. They're able to have their own children. That's, that's a successful family. That's why as a church, our goal is not just to focus on courageous evangelism, but also on purposeful disciple-making. So as we work our way through um, these six distinctives that we are trying to found this church on, uh, purposeful disciple-making is a significant piece of the puzzle here. Church is not just to be an incubator for spiritually immature Christians to continue on. It's to be a gym. It should be a training ground where believers are built up, made strong and healthy. I think one of the greatest examples of this discipleship happens in in Acts chapter 2. If you turn with me there, we're going to look at verses 42 to 47. If you don't have a Bible on you, um, just go and slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get one to you. We want you to have God's Word in your hand, on your lap, that you can see. This isn't my ideas. I have nothing of value here. If you came to listen to a wise man, um, maybe you should have tried one of the other churches down the road. Uh, I, I'm just a dummy with God's Word, and that's, that's my, my hope until the day I die, um, that, that we might just get everything from God's Word, and, and that's that's my goal. Uh, and, uh, and so before we read this section, I want us to just set the stage a little bit. Um, we're right here at the very beginning of the book of Acts. The church is just in its very early days. Acts 1.15, we're told there were 120 believers huddled together, terrified in this upper room, waiting on Jesus as he commanded them to. Peter had taken some leadership role in this infant church And it's that group huddled together and the promise of Jesus is fulfilled and the Holy Spirit comes on them, is poured out in power. And and they begin to speak these foreign languages that they had not known. They're proclaiming the gospel. There are faithful Jews gathered there from all around and they're hearing the message of the gospel in their own language. And then verse 41 tells us, those who received this word were baptized And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. That's church growth. Like, they've got it. 
120 gathered in an upper room to 3,120 the next day. Turns out if, if the arrival of the promised Holy Spirit is your church growth plan, uh, he gets things done. But what do we do? What's next? How, how do we shepherd these infant sheep? Where do we go from here? And, and that's exactly what verses 42 and 47 are all about. This is the apostles' discipleship strategy. This is what it means for them to, to, to be growing the church, to be making disciples out of these new converts. Follow along with me as I read Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food and with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's two distinct portions to this passage. Uh, verse 42 is this process of discipleship. And then I think verses 43 to 47 are the produce of discipleship. It's the product. This is what the, the benefits of it. It's, it's probably not that clearly divided. There's some overlap. Um, but I want to spend the bulk of our time in verse 42. We're going to really camp there Dig that out a little bit, uh, and, and then we'll just kind of, I just want to give us a taste. I just want to whet your appetite a little bit for the things to come, looking at verses 43 to 47. So when you're watching my time and how far we are through the, through the passage, so we're not going until three this afternoon. Um, we're just going to have a brief kind of overview of 43 to 47. Um, but the first thing I want us to see here in verse 42 is this call to embrace the process of discipleship. Embrace the process of the discipleship. This was not just a, a group gathered for pie socials and hymn sings. This wasn't just a, a casual get-together. This was about making disciples. This was about growing mature followers of Christ. Verse, verse 42 is just packed full. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Uh, I think there are five elements we can pull out of here. Um, and I just want to work through them one by one, fairly briefly. The discipleship, of the, plan, uh, the discipleship plan of the apostles is intentional, instructional, interpersonal, driven by the gospel, and dependent on grace. So first, it's intentional. And I think that's huge. That's why we have purposeful disciple making. They devoted themselves to these things. It didn't happen by accident. It wasn't casual. It was intentional. It was purposeful. It takes work. The apostles and this band of, of 120 believers surrounded by 3,000 new converts devoted themselves to these things. They set out from the beginning to say, these are important. We're not going to let these slide. We're not going to let whether this happens or not be, be happenstance. They were devoted to keep these things as priorities. That word devoted there could be, could be translated courageously endured. They fought hard for it consistently. I'm not going to let it slide because that's our human nature, isn't it? As, as humans, we don't want to endure. We, like everything else on this planet, some science nerd's going to correct me on this, but as far as I know, um, we are subject to inertia, right? We want to stay still. There are, are forces working against us, and we just want to give in. We could, we could continue this uphill battle, this all-out war of making disciples and press on in that, or we could just stay here. It's nice here. There's cookies and coffee. It's comfortable here. No one is talking about hard things like, like sin and 
growth and sanctification. That just sounds dangerous, uncomfortable. I don't feel bad about knowing my Bible, not knowing my Bible. I don't feel bad about not spending time in prayer, not praying with others. I can come and go like one Sunday out of four or five. That's pretty acceptable and everybody's okay with that because, you know, I'm here. My relationships are just beautifully superficial, right? It's just put on the happy smile and come in Sunday morning. That's the only time when anyone sees me and, and I can say hi and, and doing great and I can leave again. There's no danger of probing conversations. Just exchange pleasantries and then Sunday afternoon, it's all over. We're good, done for another week. Back to our comfortable, complacent lives. That's easy, church. We can do that. That's complacent. That's where we'd like to be if our human nature had its way. That's the church without courageously enduring in what is important. That's why it's not enough for us to just go with the flow, to just kind of do church however we kind of feel like it when we wake up Sunday morning. But that's why we have to print off banners and things that say these are what is important. This is what Scripture holds in front of us. We've got to fight for these things. We're going to continue on. We're going to endure in these things. These things matter. We're not playing games here. Heaven and hell and, and eternal rewards hang in the balance. I don't want to play church. I don't have time for that. If I want to join a social club, I'll get into RC airplanes or something. This is work because it matters. So we ought to devote ourselves to these things. That's why we exist. That's what we're here for. If you're not into that, I'm sorry. We love you, but you're just in the wrong church because we're not, we're not going to stay in the, the comfy, cozy, superficial path that leads to death. Not interested. It's a place to be built up, to be strengthened, to be sent out. Ephesians 4.11 is the, kind of the key verse on this purposeful disciple making. I want to read 11 uh, through 15. Look what Paul says. And he, this is Jesus, gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints. Newsflash, that's you and me. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. I am not the minister of this church. That's not my job, to do the ministry of the church. My job, the job of the elders, is to be shepherding, equipping, preparing the saints to do the work of the ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. So God gave First, the apostles and the prophets in the, the founding days of the church. And then that's passed down to the evangelists. And, and I would argue shepherds and teachers is actually should be blended. That's the shepherd teachers. It's the elders in the church to be building up, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And if you kind of work through this passage, you'll see this, this gift of the, the shepherd teachers for the building up of the work. But then the goal is at the end... That we are all speaking the truth in love to one another, building each other up. You ought to be in that place. That's what maturity looks like, that you're discipling others. And let me say at the same time, that means that as a shepherd, I'm also a sheep. I'm not excluded from these things. I need that. The end goal is we're all built up, mature. It's disciples who are discipled and then making disciples. That's what we're about. Every part of the body strengthened, built up, equipped. And it doesn't just require the devotion of the elders, the shepherd, teachers, evangelists, but it requires the devotion of those involved. Do you want to grow in your faith? What are you doing about it? Hebrews 4.12, strive 
for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for it. Work for it. 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. We know what it means to train ourselves. I want to be able to run a marathon. I'm going to have to work at that little by little, persistently growing in that. Train yourself for godliness. So as a church, we're working hard to to devote ourselves to, to making disciples. We're not perfect at that. There are a lot of things that we can figure out. There are a lot of things that we want to grow in as we try to kind of bring a little more structure and direction to the church. But we have small groups. We have men at war. We have women of excellence. Opportunities for you to serve and to be involved. And it doesn't depend entirely on the elders. Are you being intentional in engaging that? Engaging those opportunities in front of you? Are you courageously enduring, devoting yourself to growing as a Christian? I would, but it's hard. Sometimes I don't feel like it. I'm really busy. I need my sleep. I signed up for a Tiddlywinks convention and I'm part of the Community Flowers Club and I can only miss so many meetings a month. So I'd love to, but... It's not practical for me. It takes sacrifice. It takes work. It takes devotion. I might be wrong on this too, but I I just don't think the Tiddlywinks competition is going to matter 10,000 years from now. I just don't think your flower garden is going to matter 10,000 years from now. Not wrong on that case you were wondering. There are a few people who legitimately are in a place in life. Some of these things just don't work right now. Maybe you're working shift work and it's just hard and you just, right now I need to provide for my family. That is a good and godly and this is my only opportunity. I'm not trying to add guilt to your life. But lean into being a disciple. Take every opportunity that you have available to you. Try to be involved. Work at that. And and there are maybe some just immovable hurdles right now. I I get that. Lean into discipleship and look for, are there changes that I can make? Are there ways that I can work around this? Is there another job opportunity? This matters. I think so often we, we think, well, I'll, you know, my, my job is taking me here. And so uh, if discipleship can happen over there, that's great. If not, oh, well, maybe we ought to flip that. Maybe being a part of the church should matter. And then we'll find a job that works with the church. And I get that's a, that's a big task. Maybe the other thing is rely heavily on your own time in the word, time with the Lord in prayer. Nobody is too busy for that. Nobody. If you are, then you need to quit your job. That's bottom line. But you need to know discipleship doesn't just happen. You've got to be intentional. It will be hard work. There will be sacrifice. So we need to devote ourselves to these things, courageously enduring in them. But what exactly does that look like? What did they devote themselves to? The discipleship of the early church was first intentional, and secondly, it was instructional. It was learning-based. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, the term disciple, just it means that, to be a student, to be a learner. Our growth in discipleship is rooted in growing in a knowledge of who God is, a knowledge of the apostles' teaching. Romans 12, 2, you you know this verse, do not be conformed any longer to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. It's the renewal of the mind that brings about transformation. Now, absolutely, the heart is involved, but but it begins with understanding. It's with knowing who God is, filling our minds with God's truth. 
Now they had the apostles teaching directly. That would have been cool. They got to sit down and hear from Peter and James and Bartholomew. And if you had a a theological question, you could sit down with Paul and say, can you just unpack this for me? Um, That would be terrifying. Um, But we have the apostles' teaching. Make no mistake. We have the apostles' teaching. This is every word of the apostles' teaching that God intended for us to have. No less. No more. It's exactly what God intended for us. Written down in in black and white. Unchanging. Paul defines discipleship this way in in 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, And what you have heard from me, there's that, that teaching, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Discipleship is centered around God's Word. It's understanding the teachings of Scripture, growing in them, and and growing to a place where you can be instructing others. When Jesus prayed His high priestly prayer, His prayer for us in, in John 17, 17, He says, Father, sanctify them, make them holy, make them pure. In the truth, Your Word is truth. Make your people holy, Father, and do it by your word. There is no holiness that is not rooted in God's word. There is no life that honors God that is just disassociated from the Bible. It doesn't happen. If you believe that you're living a life pleasing to God with very little time spent in his word and formed by his word, I'm sorry, you're wrong. And the only reason you can think that is because you spend very little time in his word. Primary to discipleship is instruction in the Word of God. This is our tool. That's why we open this book every Sunday when we gather, and no sermon of mine will be anything other than just trying to unpack what God has already said. But it doesn't end there. Continues on. Not only is it intentional and instructional, This discipleship plan that we see in verse 42 is interpersonal. Back in Acts 42, 42, and they, right there, they, together, them, the body. It's plural group, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. But here's the problem, we have destroyed the term fellowship. We don't know what that means anymore. It's tragic. When we say fellowship, we tend to think of uh, gathered together with tea and crumpets, right? I mean, fellowship equals bad coffee and stale cookies, doesn't it? We think the word for, is, is just for people gathered together for no other purpose than gathering together. So when we plan an event and we don't know why we're doing it, we just call it fellowship. That covers it. The, 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 the reason we're getting together is just to get together. We think fellowship is, is synonymous with, with just small, tra- small talk and, and trivial pleasantries. That's not fellowship. The word there is koinonia, and, and it's highly influenced by this kind of legal usage that it had in the day. Uh, it's used a little more directly this way in verse 44 that we read earlier. They had all things in common, they had all things in koinonia. So if you, you started a business in Paul's day and you were a 50-50 partner with someone, you were going into business in koinonia, in partnership. You had equal investment. You had joint ownership together. Context of Scripture, the idea of fellowship is we have fellowship in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we have this kind of communal buy-in, ownership, in a sense, in Jesus. We're all partakers together of Jesus. And with that, we're we're partners together. We're co-owners of this mission that He has given us. That's what Paul's talking about as he opens the book of Philippians. The word koinonia is often translated as partnership in in verse 5 there. Picking up verse 3, Philippians 1. 
I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership, your fellowship, your koinonia in the gospel from the first day until now. What does it mean to have fellowship, to have partnership in the gospel? Partly it means we have fellowship because of the gospel. As we read earlier in, in, uh, in Ephesians, that, that it's the gospel that has broken down this dividing wall of hostility, has joined us together into one new man. We're, we're united in the gospel. We're also united in the gospel mission. The gospel is a task that we're sent out to fulfill. Go and preach the gospel. We have joint partnership in it. There is one place that I know of in pop culture where fellowship is actually used more accurately in a movie than it's used often in the church. And somebody knows what it is and you're thinking it and you're probably right. What movie is it? Lord of the Rings. Yes, you've seen it. That's fellowship. That's fellowship. This group of of radically different people absolutely devoted to one cause, one epic mission, and they will give their lives for it. That's a fellowship. That's what we're talking about. Striving together toward a goal. It's It's the no man left behind. We're bound together and communally responsible for the completion of this epic mission of the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth. There's there's no time for teen crumpets here, guys. We need fellowship. We need more than that. It has everything to do with accomplishing this mission, relying on each other, living interdependently. Right? The opposite of independent. We are interdependent. We need each other. Discipleship is this interpersonal endeavor. We are together responsible. You can't do it on your own. And partly because you are not on your own. Whether you like it or not, you're part of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and following. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body... Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit you were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. All were made to drink of one spirit. You are part of the body. Just because the hand says I'm not part of the body doesn't make it less part of the body. Every single believer has been filled with the Holy Spirit and is united together as the body of Christ. You are the body. You can't possibly do it alone. You're not alone. We talk so much about a a personal relationship with Jesus, and we ought to. It ought to be a a very personal relationship with Jesus, and and yet it's, it's not just you. We all come together in this gospel. We're part of the fellowship of the church. So discipleship means being devoted to the fellowship of the saints. We're living out this community that that there are no lone rangers in the church. It's a contradiction of terms. Every single one of us is part of the body and, and we desperately need the body. Some of you have thought about this a little bit because you're reading the bulletin and I used the word fellowship. We're getting together for a potluck. We're going to have fellowship at a potluck. Isn't that what you just railed against? Maybe. Could be. That kind of depends what we do with it, doesn't it? Relationships don't start at 100%. They take work. Maybe we need to just spend some time having potluck together, getting to know one another. But what are we doing with that time? Are we building that unity? Are we, are we plowing for deep relationships? Are we having conversations that matter? Are we beginning to let people into our lives, let them see behind the veil? And I would hope that that fellowship here begins to also produce fellowship otherwhere. If you slip down the paths, they're meeting together in each other's homes. Are we doing that? Are you getting to know each other in real personal ways? That's it's dangerous. You've got to be vulnerable. That's what we're after. That's what 
fellowship is about. So discipleship is intentional, it's instructional, it's interpersonal. And then I, then I ran out of N-words, um, but there's a shift here as well. It's driven by grace. It's driven by grace. And, and that, changes, that changes everything. Oh, if you miss this, you've missed the whole thing. First, why, why do I say it's driven by grace? What, what do you see in verse 42 that, that allows for that? Uh, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Really? Crumbling loaves is what gave you that impression? Yeah. I don't think they're just eating together. I think that's what's happening down later. I know it's the same phrase. They were breaking to bread together in each other's homes. Um, it can be used in kind of this casual sense. But you'll notice the significant difference here is the breaking of the bread. That the, I think, is significant. And I think the context of it is significant. I think this is the breaking of the bread. I think it's communion. They're gathering together, celebrating the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As they are courageously enduring in giving themselves to the teaching of the word, committing to one another in these purposeful gospel partnerships, consistently returning to the foot of the cross in communion. In communion, we're reminded of the grace in which we all stand. Yes, discipleship takes work. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it takes discipline and willpower. Yes, it is a call to strive and struggle for holiness, to do battle against the flesh that is in us. But it is all resting on and motivated by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that is the difference that changes everything. It's not about gritting your teeth and and putting your head down and, and just getting it done. It's not about sheer willpower and and the strength of the human spirit. It's not about self-help and personal development. It's not about the power of positive thinking and self-talk. It's about coming back again and again to the foot of the cross. To be reminded of the grace of God toward us. To be overwhelmed again and again. No matter how much we have failed and will fail and continue to fail. That in the eyes of God, it's paid in full. Our hope is not in our ongoing work, but in His finished work. Discipleship stems from worship. Whatever you do with your life, if it's not rooted in and stemming from worship, then it's not discipleship. Discipleship requires coming back constantly living in, abiding in Christ. Be reminded of what He's done on the cross, the wonder of this new covenant. My sin paid for by His blood. And and just like our bodies are consistently strengthened and refreshed physically by taking in physical food and drink, so our souls need to be continually strengthened and fed and refreshed by feeding on the truths of the cross. There's, there's significant imagery in communion and why it's done the way it's done. So often we want to make discipleship guilt-driven, human-focused, Tell people, you better, you better shape up or else. God's going to be disappointed with you if you don't live this way. You just need to, to be stronger, to fight harder, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Quit being so lazy. Well, maybe you do need to quit being so lazy. But what drives that? Is it guilt or is it grace? Is it being reminded that Jesus already lived the perfect life on your behalf. That God's joy in us, again, is not dependent on our performance, but on His performance. That Christ is strong, that He's already won the battle on your behalf. We rest in that. If you're struggling and fighting to to grow in Christ, you feel like you're a failure at discipleship, 
What you need to do is not put your head down and work harder. Lift your eyes up. Worship deeper. Rest in Him. It's driven by grace. Self-discipline as the motivation for discipleship just is not sustainable. It doesn't produce that kind of fruit. It just produces exhaustion and a greater awareness of our own sinful fallenness. Worship produces discipleship. It's absolutely, absolutely driven by grace. That's what moves us forward. And so then, of course, it's dependent on prayer. It says they devoted themselves to the prayers. The prayers probably because they were newly converted Jews. This is what they did. They, it seems they continued to meet together in the temple at the regular time scheduled for prayer. Chapter 3, we see uh, Paul, or sorry, Peter and John uh, were on their way to the temple at the hour of prayer. These 3,000 that were saved were, were devout Jews who had traveled far from home to be in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And, and Christianity was not a destruction of Judaism. It was a, was a fulfillment of it. And so, yes, they would soon have to part ways with those who would refuse to accept the Messiah as the fulfillment of all of these promises to Israel. But at this point, it made sense for them to just continue to gather. Pray together in the temple was a pretty good meeting place to do that. They continued devoting themselves to the prayers because they knew their need. They knew their own desperation. So consistently we find them on their knees, crying out to God to be at work in them. They devoted themselves to calling out to God for His grace, sanctifying them, utterly dependent on Him in prayer. Again, let me point out, I think there's some similarities between how they did church and how we do church. That's really intentional. They had the preaching of the word. They had fellowship together. They had communion together. They had prayer meetings together. These things matter. We don't just do these kind of haphazardly. They're not incidental. They're, they're what the Bible puts forward as this is discipleship. This is how we grow together. Are you embracing that process of discipleship? Are you engaging in these things? We, we live in an odd time. It seems to me we've, we've had a transition as of late. In the, in the early 1900s, the big threat to the church was the threat of liberalism. That was the battle that raged. Liberalism argued times have changed. People have changed, and so the message of the gospel has to change. Nobody believes in miracles anymore. Don't talk about the miracles. We'll find explanations. We'll find good, reasonable explanations. No one's going to believe that Jesus died and rose again. Let's talk about that in metaphorical ways. We need to adjust the message of Christianity. Unsurprisingly, liberalism stripped the gospel of its power, and it has all but died out. Certainly there are strongholds, but I think if you look at the United Church, you'll see a shell of what once was, and liberalism is the cause of that. But I think in the church today, there's a new notion. Now, new is probably 50, maybe more years older. What we really need is new methods. We need new strategies. That's what will reach the world. That's what's going to save the church from becoming irrelevant and, and ineffective. We need bigger programs. We need fancier production. Now, don't get me wrong. Programs can be great. High-end production in and of itself can be perfectly fine and good. The problem is we want to begin to put our hope in those things. We use them to replace the power of the gospel. We've got to leave behind what the church has historically called the, the ordinary means of grace means, it just means a tool or a method. God has used these ordinary means of grace throughout the centuries, the millennia in the church. Tools, methods of making us holy, of growing us to be more like Christ. How are disciples made? 
being taught in the Word, having fellowship with one another, the practice of communion together, time in prayer together. There are certainly others that we could add to that list, but these are the kind of the basic pieces that stand out in verse 42 here. And there are certainly creative and ingenuitive ways that we can employ these ordinary means, that we can go about it in the church. But we dare not leave them behind. We dare not be so arrogant as to imagine that that what God really needs is for us to develop something new. We, We need to come up with a new method that will really reach people. This, this little gospel thing just isn't working anymore. Something more exciting. What we need is to devote ourselves to these things. What we need is to do what God has called us to do and to trust God. We need to trust God to use the ordinary means that he has supplied for us. But that's the problem, isn't it? They're ordinary. They're so ordinary. Remember the story of Naaman? Naaman was a powerful and feared general in the great army of Syria. He was a big deal. He had leprosy. Incurable. It was a, it was a death sentence. It was a matter of time until his leprosy would kill him. He had tried every other option, so he finally showed up at the home of the prophet Elijah with his great caravan of of servants and chariots to show how important he is. And Elijah doesn't even come out of the house. He doesn't come out of the house. He just sends his servant out. "Go Go and tell Naaman to wash in the Jordan River. Some people want to say, Oh, the Jordan. See, it's the Jordan River. No, that's the point. It's just a river. Go wash in the Jordan River. And Naaman almost didn't do it. Like, really? That's what you want me to do? Do you have any idea how many things I've tried? How many sophisticated physicians I've had to try these crazy, painful, ridiculous things and they've all failed and you want me to go wash in the Jordan River? Like that's going to do it? I've washed my hands 10,000 times. You think this time is going to be different? And Naaman's servant spoke up. Why don't you just try it? Why don't you just, why don't you just do it? What do you got to lose? Just trust the Lord and wash. And he did. And sure enough, Naaman is, is made whole. He's cleansed. Allow me to play the role of your servant here. Sometimes it takes humility to just trust in what God has put in front of you. To trust that God can cleanse even me. That my life could be changed and transformed into something radically different than what I have today. That I don't have to continue wallowing in sin and fear and doubt. And maybe it won't be through some great miracle. Maybe praying and asking God for a sign has been the wrong way all along. I just need to simply devote myself to God's word, to the fellowship of the saints, looking more and more to his grace on the cross, learning to really worship him and let that drive my life, being dependent on him in desperate prayer. Are you here every week? Hearing God's word preached? Are you reading the Bible? Growing in your knowledge of him? It's not a quick fix. It's not an instant fix. Are you growing in that? Transforming your mind? Are you taking part in in small groups? Building real, meaningful, deep relationships? Fellowship relationships? Are you resting in God's grace? celebrating communion with with joy. Looking again at that work on the cross, resting in the marvelous truths of our salvation. Do you prioritize personal prayer? Prayer meetings, praying together with other believers. Without those things, you will never grow. But through 
them, God intends to do a work in your life, to build you up little by little, day at a time. Trust Him in that. What about approaching somebody who's ahead of you in the faith and just saying, can you walk with me through this? I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels here. Somebody's got a little bit longer perspective on life. Can you disciple me? Help me grow in my faith? Help me know what it means to really read the Word, to really engage in fellowship? And trust. Trust God that as you give yourself to these things, He'll use them. As you're striving hard for holiness, not leaving that behind, God will be at work in that. Through these Ordinary means God will be doing extraordinary work in your heart and your life that you might not see. Not right away, maybe not over the course of a couple of years as God slowly works. And I know it's easy to think I tried that. I did that. It didn't work. I went to church for like three weeks in a row and nothing happened. It's not how it works. It's growth, it's a process, it's time. But it also has to do with, are you devoted to these things? Like really devoted to them? Have you you really grasped the idea that this is war that I'm in? Don't dabble in them, devote yourself to them. And God will be faithful, He will. You are not the one person in this world for whom God's plan of growth will be insufficient. It will take time, probably more than you think. It will take determination, definitely more than you think. It will take that honest, gut-level trust in God and willingness to obey Him even when everything in your heart screams against it. But His Word will not return void. Courageously endure in these things. And as I promised, I just want to briefly look through verses 44 sorry, 43 to 47, and just see the fruit of that. What kind of church does this produce? What what happens when a a body of believers are devoted to these things? And, And we'll be brief. Verse 43, the first thing there is is a new beholding, and this is the greatest result. Awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Awe, fear, wonder, came upon every soul. They have this renewed vision of the glory of God. They're able to, to worship in fresh ways. They see Him more clearly than they ever did before. They're transfixed on His glory. Secondly, verses 44 to 47, they had a new belonging. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, they're attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Let's just dispel the myth here. This is not Christian communism. It's not what we're talking about. It's clear here. And I think also in chapter four, it's need driven. As someone had need, someone else says, I can fill that need. And they're serving one another that way. It is sacrificial giving. Let's not take that away, absolutely. But they cared for each other. And that way they had everything in common. They gathered together in the temple as a large group. We see in Acts 5, they met in Solomon's portico, just a big room they had. And they gathered in one another's homes for meals as, as small groups. And they had glad and generous hearts. They praised God together. So this new belonging as the church. This was their family. This was their social network. This was their safety net. Their relationships were were deep and and mutually sacrificial and meaningful. A new beholding of God, new belonging with one another. And then I think um, this is particularly important as well. This process continues to perpetually restart as there's new believers. Because true disciples produce new disciples. That's what maturity looks like, right? We know that physically. If someone is physically mature, they are able to reproduce. You are not a bowl into which God is pouring His blessings and His grace for you to keep. You are a conduit that is to be full of God's blessings as it pours out to others. 
They were living life together that drew the attention of the outsiders, and they were each individually sharing the gospel with people, and they were, they were getting saved. The church was growing as disciples were making disciples, meeting their neighbors, their co-workers, their friends. Everywhere they went, the gospel was on their lips. And that's the kind of church. The church devoted to these ordinary means of grace that God will bless with new believers, that God will entrust with new sheep as we share His good news. That's what we're after, Redemption Church. That's what we want to be. We want to be a church that is, that is devoted to purposeful disciple-making. Let me pray for us. Father, You are so good to us. We just want to start again recognizing Your grace. We've sung about it this morning and rejoiced in it. We've seen it again in Your Word. Father, would You be at work in our hearts that we might engage in this process of discipleship, that we would be built up, God, that we would be a church that is intentional, speaking the truth and love to one another, devoted to these ordinary means of grace and trusting you and your goodness to be at work. Lord, that this church, the Redemption Church, might be, uh, as the church in Acts was, a testimony to your grace, a testimony to your faithfulness and your glory. Lord, we want to see people saved. We want to see your gospel go forward. Lord, would you start that in us? your gospel would produce this kind of fruit in our lives first, or that it might all be to the glory of your name in the church and in Jesus Christ.